Well, we are still in our Truish series. Uh, this will be the second to last uh, part of our Truish series. Uh, and as we have each part of this series, we're going to start with a little game this morning. But as you notice, there are no contestants up here because you are the contestants this morning, okay? Um, this is, if you've ever seen the newlywed game, so if, if you have your spouse with you this morning, uh, I encourage you to, to play this as best you possibly can. Um, but the way it usually goes is you ask a question, one, you know, first one, one, you know, either the husband or the wife leaves the room, and then you ask the questions, and they answer them, and then, the, you know, the spouse comes back in, and vice versa. Um, so this morning, I want you to, uh, if you have a spouse here, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and you're both going to come up with your answer, give you a couple seconds to think about it, and then you're going to say your answers at the same time. And if you have the right answer, then you raise your hand and we'll see who gets the right answers on these. Which of our spouses are right in tune with one another, okay? Uh, if any of them are. Uh, and I'm, gonna, I'm actually just going to do it with Jackie. Um, she doesn't have to because I don't want to embarrass her. Uh, I'll yell out my answers and she'll tell me if I'm right or not. Uh, which I'm right. So, uh, <laughs> so, what would be the ideal date for your spouse? If they could pick, what would they choose to do? Okay, give you a second to think about that. Okay, and go ahead and tell your spouse and see if you're right. I'm going to guess take out and movie at home. Am I right? <laughs> the answer was yes. Uh, what were you thinking? Well, you're supposed to think about yourself and your other end. What were you going to say for me? Spot on, man. I love hiking. Was I right for you, though? Is that an ideal date? Okay. How many of you got it right? How many of you got your spouse's ideal date right? All right. Three couples that were on, that are, that are in sync, okay? All right, more, a little bit more specific here. Where was your first date? Okay. Got it in your mind? All right, go ahead and tell your spouse. I know we differ on this one. We've talked about this before. I, I would say, well, we'll just say community church. That was our first date. Went to church together. Yes, Baptist church. I saved her out of the Baptist church, so now she's an alliance person. All right, how many of you got it right? How many of you agreed you, you knew where your first date was? Okay, a couple more. You guys knew that one. Okay, what were they wearing? Sorry, guys. Uh, wives will tend to remember this one. Uh, husbands, maybe this is going to put you in a doghouse. All right, thought about it for a second. Go ahead, tell your spouse what they were wearing the first time. All I remember is you were wearing a black jacket and your colorful scarf. That's all I remember. I don't actually remember shirt and, shirt and pants. What was I wearing? You were wearing your Jennifer blue button up shirt and tie. No. No tie. That was my go-to shirt. My one dress-up shirt. How many of you got it right? How many of you actually remembered what your spouse was wearing? Okay, a couple of you. Good job. 
How many of you are now in trouble? Uh, okay, good job, Ryan. Uh, who said I love you first? Who was the first to say I love you? Who said it first? That's right. I did. How many of you got that one right? You remembered? Okay, spouses remember? Okay. Uh, here's one that might... So you're gonna, I want you to think, again, of your answer, but also what your spouse would answer. If your spouse could have any superpower, what would it be? Okay? If your spouse could have any superpower, what do you think it would be? I could, I probably should have thought about this before I asked the question. I think I know. Okay. What would your, okay, go ahead and tell your spouse. What do you think for me? I already have that superpower. What would yours be? Ah, That's exactly what I thought. Got that one right. How many of you got it right? You guessed your spouse's preferred superpower. Nice. Three people. Good job. You guys know what your superpowers would be. What is your spouse's all-time favorite TV show? All-time favorite. Well, well you know what? Yeah, no, we're going to stick to TV show. I don't want to get into movies. Just TV show. Their all-time favorite. All right? Go ahead, go ahead and share your answers with your spouse. What would you say for me? That's right. What would I, and I'm, I'm going to guess The Office for you as well. Ish. I know. You don't have any favorites. All right, just a few more here. How many of you got that one right? You knew what your spouse's favorite TV show was. Okay. Um, What was the first movie you saw together? First movie you saw together. Whether that was in a theater or on TV, first movie you saw together. Go ahead and share your answers. How about you? I have no idea either. (laughs) Absolutely no idea. I know we went to a movie, and I don't remember. What's the first movie we went to see in the theater? I forget what it was. How many of you know what the first movie you ever watched together was? Wow, we actually have a few few people actually know. Man, better than than us. Uh, Okay, this one, sorry if this gets you in trouble. What song did you dance to at your wedding? If you don't know this one, it's not my fault, sorry. You're going to be in trouble. Uh, guys. I feel like it's irrelevant to the girls. They'll probably all remember. Guys, you may be in the doghouse at this point. I do know mine, so I'm, I'm safe. Do you remember? I know you remember. Because they played the wrong version of it at our wedding. L-O-V-E by Nat King Cole. How many of you remembered? You got it right. You you knew the song. How many of you need to sign up for marriage counseling? Okay. Uh, All right, last one. We'll end on a fun note. What is their favorite ice cream flavor? Their favorite ice cream flavor. If you were out, you decided you had the hankering for ice cream and you wanted to surprise your spouse, what would you go with? Go ahead and share your answers. And for you, I'm trying to think. 
depends on what the weather is and what color shirt you're wearing. Uh, I don't know. I know you like that orange cream. You have a fun, bunch of favorites. The Oreo. You can't go wrong with Oreo. How many of you got that one right? You know your spouse is like, okay. You guys, you, what's mine? That's right. Over the top, Graham Central Station. I love me some cinnamon. All right, that's just a fun little game that might have got you in trouble. Uh, you might not have thought that was fun. This wasn't exactly a test of the health of the relationships in our church. Uh, I don't think so. It's not a very accurate test of the health of our relationships. But the point of this game is to point out that one would assume the longer a couple is together, the better they know each other, right? Some of these questions, I, I like, uh, Jackie and I, we like certain vacations, and we go on a cruise. Uh, they always play this game on the cruise, and it's interesting because uh, they'll mix up the questions. Some are questions that you know because you've spent a lot of time together, but then other questions like, what was the first movie you saw? Obviously, the older couples are going to struggle with that one more so than the younger couples because it's been longer since they watched that first movie, or what was your spouse wearing the first time you met them kind of thing. Um, those are questions that are easier to answer if you either have a good memory or if you haven't been together long, whereas some of them test how well do you know your spouse, like favorite TV show maybe, or favorite ice cream, or uh, my favorite one here is what, what would your spouse's superpower be? Because that takes some understanding of who your spouse is, what they like to do, um, and what they would want to do if they could have a superpower. But the, again, you would assume the longer you're together, the better you know each other, which is why sometimes your spouse gets angry when you don't read their mind or know them better than you should because you've been together for a while. Why should there be an expectation that couples know each other better the longer they're together? Because relationships are about sharing things together and spending time getting to know the other person. If you've been married for 10 years and you still have no idea like what your spouse's favorite ice cream is or what TV shows they like or what type of movies they like or what, what kind of what restaurant they would want to go to, you're probably not spending a whole lot of time getting to know them. You're not focusing on what they want, more focused on what you want. Relationships which are one-sided are not what any of us would call healthy. One of the things my wife and I would share together is we would say one of the things we loved about each other when we first met each other was we had both been in a number of relationships and they were generally one-sided. We were the initiator. We were the one putting out all the effort. And when we met each other and we both put in effort, it was like, wow, this is really cool. We're both putting a lot of energy into the relationship and, and doing nice things for each other and blessing each other. And it was the first time we, either of us had that, we finally found ourselves in a healthy relationship where we were both pouring into, uh, and it was pretty cool. One-sided relationships aren't fun. Some of you have been there. You've been in that place where the relationship either was from the beginning or at one point became one-sided, and that's not what any of us would call healthy, which is why I find the truest statement that we're going to cover today so interesting. If you don't know what the series is all about, we've been covering true to partly true statements that the enemy uses to create lies and deception in our lives. 
And so we've covered a number of them, but the one I want to cover today is, and you've probably heard it a bunch of times, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. I've heard it many times. Now, I would argue this is a true statement. So before you call me a heretic, uh, this is a true statement. But I have seen Satan use it as a true-ish statement very often. Very often he uses this concept that I would argue, yeah, the concept is true. The reality, it's based in reality, but that's where so many of the lies the enemy wants us to believe are. They're based out of truth, even if they're 99% true. Sometimes he will take actual truth and use it to deceive us. If you think the enemy doesn't use Scripture even to confuse us, to uh, get us away from God, he's really good like that. He's the father of lies, and he will use even true statements to do that. By creating lies uh, about what is religion and what is relationship, the enemy can get us confused with a statement like this, trying to convince people that the things of religion are rules and order, discipline, tithing, serving, sacrifice. I've heard all of these things referred to as, that's religion. That's, that's on the religion side. It's all about relationship. The enemy gets us to, to, to believe that the things of relationship or a consumer mentality toward church. Like, when we show up here, it, we should be served. The church should do something for us. Uh, a pick-and-choose mentality toward Scripture. Well, I'm just going to decide that I believe this, that's cultural, that doesn't apply anymore. Um, self-serving Christianity. Sinful lifestyle. Sporadic church involvement. How does the enemy do this? How does he get us to believe this is religion and this is relationship? By creating the idea in our minds that the church, what the church does, what pastors do, is they try to guilt people into the disciplines of the faith through religion. That's what it's all about. They try to push the rules and the regulations and the you should do this and you should do that and you shouldn't do that. And if you partake in the disciplines of the faith, then, oh, you must be guilty of religion. Oh, you're, you're a fanatic, or you're all about religion, but I'm about relationship. That's what the enemy tries to convince us and get us to believe. And that if you would just focus on a relationship and not religion, people that focus on the relationship, the enemy tells us, means you don't have to attend church. You don't have to go to church. That's not important. You, don't have to, you shouldn't have to serve in any way. You don't you certainly shouldn't give any of your money to the church because that's all about religion. And I've heard multiple people tell me, and you've probably heard this, I don't agree with organized religion, or I don't believe in organized religion. But when I ask those same people how their unorganized religious walk with Jesus is, never a very strong thing. Because here's the thing, read the New Testament sometime and focus on the community language. The gospel is all about community. It's why Jesus didn't do what he did by himself. Because let's be honest, Jesus could have done all of his ministry by himself. He could have raised up leaders who never followed him, and he could have won the world just like he did. He chose to invite 12 specific men, and then hundreds of others. If, if you think Jesus only had 12 disciples, you, you haven't read, you, you've believed the, uh, uh, I guess, the commercial version of, of Christianity too much. Jesus had hundreds of followers. 
Uh, That's one of the things, again, I I like about the chosen is they show that Jesus had far more than just the 12 disciples that followed him. He had all these people follow him. It was all about community. Jesus was teaching us, you can't do this outside of community. And yet, what does the enemy do? It convinces us, oh, organized religion, that, that, that's all messed up. Uh, oh, you know, all that old church stuff and, and religious, you know, all that, oh, man, that's oppressive. That's just going to mess you up. You should just go out on your own and do it by yourself. Why? Because then the enemy can really take you out because you're not in community. Satan wants us to believe that the most important fact is that you just focus on you. Because it's all about relationship. What Satan is actually getting us to do is focus on ourselves. Focus on you. That's what's important. That's what he wants us to do. Not Jesus. Because when we have our eyes set on Jesus, everything changes. How do I know this is a tactic of the enemy? Well, if we focused on an actual relationship with Jesus, we would want to do many of the things that Satan tries to tell us are all about religion. We wouldn't feel the have to, should, should do this, and, and you'll very rarely ever hear me say, this is what you should do, because I don't believe that. I don't believe in a guilt-based religion. I believe you should, I, I get confused when people don't want to when they don't want to serve Jesus, when they don't want to live a righteous lifestyle, when they don't want to live holy, because it tells me, I don't know if you're actually connected to him. Because see, I love my wife, and I don't feel like I have to do certain things for her. I get to. I love to do little things and, and see her surprise or you know, leave a note on her pillow and she walks in and she sees it because she likes notes. And uh, I don't feel like, oh gosh, I've got to write another note and stick it on her pillow. I get to, I want to, and that should be our relationship with Jesus, is we want to bless him, we want to worship him. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I love, thank you, Missy, the, the worship this morning was fantastic, and, and I love that. I don't feel like, oh, gosh, I gotta raise my hand because I'm supposed to raise my hand here. I don't feel that. I feel like, God, I want to, I want to engage you in worship. We should want to do these things that the enemy tries to convince us are religion. I wanna look at a portion of scripture this morning, um, it's the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, or the church in Corinth, at least the first one we have a record of. Um, so if, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The uh, scripture will also be on the screen, and I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, so if you want to follow along in your own translation, you can do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Starting out on a light note this morning. See, this debunks, we talked about this last uh, two weeks ago, this debunks one of the truish statements that we covered already, that the enemy tries to, to use and get us to ignore all the rules and live however we want. That's not what the Scripture says. The enemy will get you to, to believe, and especially the younger generations today, they, they fall into this trap of believing, well, the Bible's all about love, and we can do whatever we want. Everything is permissible. We can do whatever we want, and it's all good, because God died for all of our sins, so we can just do whatever we want, and we'll all go to heaven. Well... That's not true. 
That's a lie. Right here, very clearly in Scripture, Paul goes through some of the lifestyles that are uh, congruent with people who are not pointed toward the kingdom of God. Uh, what's interesting to note here is what Paul is saying is, There we go. All right. So the enemy wants us to believe that we can do whatever we want, but these aren't the things that keep us out of heaven. We need to understand it's not like, oh, well, you committed adultery or you did, you know, you did one of these things you stole one time and so you can't go to heaven. What Paul is saying is these are lifestyles that you can only live if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Because those of you who have been involved in sinful lifestyles, you come to know Jesus, you enter a relationship with him, and all of a sudden those things don't bring you joy anymore. They're not enjoyable. You don't want to do them. As a matter of fact, you start to, get, you start to loathe them. They start to be, become detestable to you. You hate those things. You're around people who are engaged in these activities. And all of a sudden, it starts to bother you. Why? Because you're in a relationship with Jesus now. Now you no longer want to do these things. So just being clear here, what Paul isn't saying is, well, if you say that you know Jesus and then you are guilty of one of these things, that's it, sorry, your ticket to heaven's gone. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you can't live this way and be in relationship with Jesus. It's not possible. So that's what the truth of that is. Yet the enemy will try to confuse us by telling us, well, hey, don't let religion tell you how to live. Heard that? These rules are just constructs of old church religion. That's what, that's what this is. Some of these sins are cultural, and they don't apply in 2021. I mean, come on, it's 2021 at this point. Those sins don't apply anymore. Am I on? Yes, good. Trying to convince us the Word of God is not the Word of God, that it's this book that changes, that, uh, that culture, that what the media tell us, that what culture says is more important or supersedes the Word of God, and it is simply not true. What was sin is sin. If anything, uh, what, like we shared two weeks ago, uh, we can only add to the list of sins. Jesus tells us if we believe something to be wrong and we still engage in it, well then for us it is sin. That's the interesting thing about Scripture. So if you're convinced something is sin, don't let someone tell you, wow, you don't have to worry about that. Again, that's the enemy trying to confuse us, trying to convince us that you just live however you want, and anybody who tells you anything else, well, they're just caught up in religion. That's what they're caught up in. You just worry about relationship. When in all, all, The whole time he's trying to point us not toward Jesus, but toward ourselves. Do your in-depth study here. I don't, don't just take my word for it. Um, certainly, study these scriptures. Study them for yourselves. But I just want to be clear on where I stand and where we stand. Nothing about this passage is outdated about religion or cultural. This is the word of God. And it existed then as truth, and it exists today as truth, and it will always exist as truth. 
Some of us here can relate to the next verse there in 1 Corinthians, verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is where the truth of the statement is today that we're talking about. It is about relationship with Jesus. It's not about a religious construct. It's not about the do's and don'ts of what people would tell us. It is about a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't know the joy of what this verse is talking about, about calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God filling you and changing everything, you're missing out. If you're still stuck in a, I have to, uh, I'm feeling forced to do these things for Jesus, you might not have experienced this. You know, if, if, if I'm in a marriage, you know, if I didn't feel the desire to bless Jackie, if I didn't feel the desire to do nice things for her and, and see her smile and bring joy to her, her, her heart, then I think it'd be a fair assumption someone could say, did you ever actually love her? When you said I love you, was it real? The chances are pretty good, No. If I don't find joy in, bring, in seeing her be joyful and happy and, and loved, then there's not love in my heart toward her. And the same, I, I believe, is true of Jesus. Some of us have prayed a prayer, or we've kneeled at an altar, or we've claimed a certain relationship with Jesus, but then we've lived this, I have to, Christianity. We've lived this, oh, I got to. Oh, it's been a couple of weeks. Pastor called me, so I better show up to church. You know, I don't want him to call me again, or uh, you know, I don't want to feel guilty for, for not being there, so I better pop in, make an appearance real quick. But we get to. We get to worship together. We get to engage in community. We get to follow him and live righteous lifestyles. We were made right by calling on the name Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what made us right. And the enemy will try to tell you, well, okay, then you're good. You don't have to do anything else with church. You can just do your own thing. You've got your ticket to heaven. That's what it's all about. It's not about religion. Don't feel like you have to do any of that stuff. But the truth is, what we don't have to do or what we shouldn't do is just go off and do whatever we want. To say, well, I've got my ticket to heaven. Now I can focus back on me. I gave Jesus that day. I, I prayed that prayer. I checked that box. Now I can go back to me. Verses 12 and 13. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach, and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies are made for sexual morality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. See, the interesting thing about this is uh, I love how Jesus himself uses marriage as, as a great uh, illustration, analogy for our relationship with Christ, because I do pre-marriage counseling with people and marriage counseling, and uh, one of the tools that I use is the Symbus, saving your marriage before it starts, pretty good stuff. If you ever want to go through it, just let me know. Uh, it's great marriage enrichment stuff as well. But what it does is it, one part of it is it 
zeroes in on your view of marriage. And there's, I think, like six or seven different views of marriage. Uh, one of them, the one that Jackie and I both scored in, is, are the resolute, the we're never getting divorced, marriages for a lifetime, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to stay married kind of mindset. That's where we fall. And that's great, but it does come with its caveats. See, some of us probably know a couple who's a bit older and if you ask them, they would say, Mar- divorce is not an option. We would never get divorced. And they can't stand each other. They don't want to be in the same room as each other. They don't like talking to each other. They don't go on dates anymore. They do nothing for each other. But in their mind, divorce isn't an option. Now, I'm not saying that they should divorce. But in their minds, that they're, pro- they're that resolute mindset. They said, well, nothing can break this apart, so there's no reason to maintain it. This is never going to break so I'm not going to do any work to maintain it. And that's the wrong mindset. And some of us have that mindset with Jesus. Well, I'm I'm written in the book of life. I'm going to heaven. There's nothing that anybody can do about that. So now I'm just going to kick back and I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to maintain this relationship because I have it already. I've got my ticket. I'm good. And this is saying, just because you're allowed to do whatever you want doesn't mean it's good for you. Doesn't mean that you're going to find joy in that says we can't become a slave to anything. And you say, well, I'm not a slave to anything. I just do whatever I want. It means you're a slave to your own desires. You're a slave to what you want. A slave to the, I'm gonna, the freedom lie. And like this verse says, I'm as sad as you are to read that God is going to do away with our stomachs and food. Uh, just a moment of silence for that to mourn. There will no longer be prime rib one day. But I've heard this lie so often, especially with the younger generations, that this idea that we can do whatever we want, it doesn't matter because I'm allowed to do anything. The, the Bible frees me up. There's, there's no such thing as sin. And they become slaves to their own desires and their own sinful lifestyles. And if we were really in a relationship with Jesus... We wouldn't use our freedom to sin. Again, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we covered that two weeks ago. I want to jump down to verse 17. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay, so if we have a relationship with Jesus, we are one spirit with him. What does the Bible say about marriage? What happens when you get married? You become one. You become one person. Some of you have decided to do that with one Facebook profile, but it actually goes deeper than that. Shockingly, I know. What does it look like to be one spirit with God? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse 18. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual morality is a sin against your own body. If we have a relationship with Jesus, we run from sin. We don't flirt with it. We don't make excuses. We don't try to figure out how we can justify it. We run from sin because the Bible tells us we, become, we begin to abhor it. And that word means it, it makes us ill. It makes us physically sick. We, it, it's disgusting is the idea of this word abhor. We begin to abhor sin. We don't want to be a part of it. It makes us sick to think about sin because now we have a relationship with Jesus. Because our eyes are set, not on our own desires and our own pleasures, but on something else. 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And so I, I love this. God revealed this portion of Scripture to me a, a number of years ago. I'd never read, I never really understood verse 3. But there's this idea that the longer we spend with Jesus, the more we begin to know ourselves, who we really are. Our life, our, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. How many of you feel the longer you've been married, you've actually become more of yourself? Your spouse has given you the freedom to be you, to express who you are. Your personality has come out better. I, I hope that's true for some of you, that your spouse is helping to cultivate you and your personality, giving you the freedom to be, I mean, if you're a weird person, like you can be weird because your spouse still loves you, and you can be cranky with your spouse because they still love you, and you can just be you. If you don't feel that with your spouse, then come talk to me. You should have that. You should have that freedom to say, yeah, I can be me. They can handle me. That's what I love about my spouse. I love that I can have a bad day with Jackie and she still loves me and puts up with me. And I'm hoping that the more we, you know, we've only been married almost eight years now, that she feels like she can be more of herself, that she can be freer to be who she is and who God's created her because I'm trying to create a safe place for her to be who she is, help her discover more of who she is. That's what cool, that's a cool part about relationships. And our relationship with Jesus is very similar in that we become more us as we spend more time with him because we have been made new, the Bible tells us. We are a new creation. So there are things about you you don't know yet. For me, it became very clear. I came to know Jesus, and all of a sudden, I like to speak in public. Before that, you should have seen me. Seventh grade, given a presentation. It was ugly. It was pathetic. And all of a sudden, this new person came out. I came to know Jesus, and this new person was there. And I'm still learning more about who I am in Jesus. Verses 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians. Don't you realize... That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. See, in a relationship, you no longer belong to yourself. Again, the Bible, very clear, marriage, you no longer belong to yourself. Your body belongs to your spouse, who you are. Now you become one. There is no more uh, this, this separate individuals who are just doing things for each other. When I do marriage counseling, I help them understand there is no such thing as a wife problem or a husband problem. You have you problems. Because it's not just that one person does something, it's how the other person responds to that thing. It's, it's us problems now. In our relationship with Jesus, we've become one, and we're no longer ourselves. We no longer have authority. We no longer belong to just ourselves. And man, the enemy will try to convince you that you do. If you want to see how pervasive this lie is, think about the problems that so many marriages struggle with. Some of you have been in a failed marriage, and you can attest to this. When a husband or wife starts getting focused on themselves and not their spouse, when they stop considering the needs, the desires, the wants of their spouse, and they become focused on themselves, how healthy do you think that relationship becomes? It begins to fall apart. When they focus on what makes themselves happy, 
they lose the idea that they now belong to another person. If you want to see an older couple who are still in love, and they, they still love to be around each other, and they love to do things together, I can pretty much guarantee you the testament will be they continued to pursue their spouse through the years. They continued to find out what makes their spouse smile, what makes them happy, because if you, don't real, if you haven't realized this yet, people change, and so as life changes, things change, and what your spouse finds uh, to be fun or interesting. Or, and, and so you constantly got to be a student of your spouse, and you seek to do things that bless them. And when that relationship stops, when they stop doing that, when they become more focused on themselves and what they want and what makes them comfortable and what makes them happy, the relationship suffers. Just like when we focus on what makes us happy, what brings us joy, what's convenient for us, when we lose the idea that we now belong to another person and his name is Jesus, when we fail to acknowledge that we have been bought with a price, the relationship suffers between us and God. So yes, it is all about relationship, not religion. But a healthy relationship is all about sacrifice, discipline, serving. Again, all you got to do is think about a marriage. What makes a marriage healthy? Selfishness, doing whatever you want, only showing up whenever it's convenient for you. That's not really a healthy relationship. Focusing not on what is best for ourselves, but for the health of a relationship. If we've bought into the lie about relationship and religion, if we think that church community is unimportant, if we're comfortable with a consumer mentality toward the church instead of a contributor mentality, if we think the church should serve us not us serve the church. If we consider the couple dollars we throw God's way instead of the tithe we are commanded to give, if we think it's all about us because it's all about relationship, not religion, we need to be reminded, Psalm 51 very clearly says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The, sacrifices you desire, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, this is what the enemy wants to keep us away from. He wants to keep us focused on the actions, focused on the details, focused on the, the boxes to check. Keep us away from seeing that it's about a broken and repentant heart. When we have that, when as we stand before Jesus and when we open our Bible or when we enter worship and our heart is broken and repentant, and we feel that relationship again. I mean, do you remember spouses when you were dating and maybe it had been a couple days since you had seen your spouse or since, well, at that point, boyfriend or girlfriend and you saw them again for the first time, the way that felt. Man, that's, that should be how we feel when we enter God's presence, when we spend time with him. There should be this joy, this excitement. And it doesn't have to be, like, there's not one specific way. You've heard me talk about before. I'll never be the person, you know, I love the movie, The War Room, but I promise you I will never have a prayer closet because I walk into a closet and I, praying is not happening. I'm going to fall asleep. I'm going to get distracted. That is not where I meet with God. But like Jackie said, my ideal date, you put me in the middle of the woods on a trail and I have the best conversations with God. I meet with him there. So I'm not telling you how to meet with him, but that 
that should, and I'm not telling you you should meet with him. My argument is you should want to. There should be a desire there. And if it's not there, then you need to deal with that problem. Just like if you were to wake up one morning and say, I don't love my spouse. Okay, don't just ignore that. Work on that. Cultivate it. Begin to fall in love again. And some of us, we've gotten there with Jesus. We've spent so long focusing on ourselves that we've lost the love we had for Jesus. And if we had more of this, more broken and repentant hearts, and less self-serving Christianity that puts self on the throne instead of Jesus, we'd spend less time convincing people our lackadaisical Christianity was about relationship, and we'd spend more time seeing the awesome power of God unleashed in our communities. That's what they need. They don't need better sermons. They don't need better graphics. They don't need better church people. They need to see the awesome power of a living God. That's what the world needs. And we're not going to get there by focusing on relationship and a lazy Christianity. See, when we're desperately in love with Jesus and we, can, we follow him and we pursue him, not of a, out of a felt need to, uh, or uh, being pushed into it, but just because we want to, the power of God will be displayed in our life. We won't have to convince anybody it's about relationship. They'll see it very clearly. They'll know that person's in love with Jesus. Sometimes they'll think there's something wrong with you because you're so in love with Jesus. And guess what? That's okay. And this relationship, if you're wondering, how do I get there? What does this look like? It only comes from abiding. John 15, 4 to 8, says, remain in me. This is Jesus talking. Remain in me, and I will remain in you, for a branch cannot produce fruit. If it is severed from the vine, and you, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great joy to my Father. This is what a relationship with Jesus looks like. There's no numbers on how often you've got to attend church. There's no numbers on money that goes into a plate. There's none of that. It's all unimportant. What matters is the abiding in Jesus. And our life should be an overflow from that. No one should have to tell you what you should do because you'll feel compelled to do the things that Jesus has for you. Just like no one has to tell me what I should do for my wife. Now, it's good for me to do some research and figure out things that will bless her, and, you know, I enjoy those kind of things. I have fun doing that, not because I have to, but because I feel compelled out of the love I have for her. None of what we talked about today, hopefully none of what we ever talk about, is meant to shame anyone. If the enemy is trying to convince you, like, oh, they're, what they're saying is shame on you. You're a terrible person. You're a horrible Christian. Oh, he was talking just to you in your situation. No shame. But the reality is, some of us have been duped by the enemy into thinking that we get to define how we interact with Jesus on our terms. Again, not a test I would recommend, 
But if you want to go home and say, okay, husband, okay, wife, this is what our marriage is going to look like from here on out. Let me tell you how well that'll go. Probably not very well. Why? Because it's just silly. Why would one person dictate everything about how the relationship is? Especially one flawed person. Now we enter a relationship with Jesus and we say, okay, Jesus, this is what a relationship's going to look like. You're going to meet me on my terms. I'm going to come to you when I need things, and um, this is how I'm going to serve you. This is when it's going to be convenient for me. This is what it'll look like. We've leaned on the lie that Satan created for us by convincing us that we are focusing on relationship over religion, but what we are focusing on is self over Jesus. The only relationship we were focused on was the one between ourself and our agenda. We had a plan for our life, we had dreams, and maybe Jesus fits into that, but only when we say so. The reality is, we were bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. And when we learn how to truly abide in Christ, everything changes. If you've never learned what it means to abide in Him, if you don't know what it feels like to be able to sit in His presence and feel so overwhelmed and so blessed, and by sit in His presence, for me it means walk in the middle of the woods, but if you don't know what it's like to be in His presence and feel the overwhelming, overpowering love of God, you need to learn how to abide talk to me. We'll help. We'll figure it out. It's no longer a have to, but a get to. This week, abide in Jesus. Whatever that looks like, however you abide, my encouragement is abide in Jesus. Really invest into that relationship. And while you're at it, do something that blesses your spouse. Bring joy to their face and be reminded that's Jesus' response when we abide. He feels so blessed when we spend time in his presence, when we show our love for him, that smile your spouse has when you do something nice, when you bless them. Jesus smiles like that over us. See how your perspective changes on this truish statement. It's all about relationship, not religion. Well, if you have people who don't know Jesus in your life, and maybe you've been talking to them about attending church. I've told you this whole series was kind of designed for that. If you want to invite somebody who doesn't know him, this last one of this series is very specifically pointed toward those who don't know Jesus, because we're going to cover next week, we're going to cover the true-ish statement, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. So if you have someone that doesn't know Jesus, have them watch or have them show up kind of call, call that favor in for the, for the actual at- attendance. And we're going to cover this idea that uh, if you've never heard somebody say this, uh, you probably don't know many non-Christians, because <laughs> uh, I've heard it a lot. Oh, it doesn't matter what I believe as long as I'm sincere about it. As long as, as, long as I give it my all and, I'm, and I'm, I'm faithful to what I believe, that's what's important. And we'll cover that next week. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have been so good to us. Lord, I thank you that I have a relationship with you. I thank you that the blessing that has been the relationship that you and I have had. God, I thank you for those moments where we've spent together that time stood still and everything just fell by the wayside and it was just us and the power of that. Lord, I thank you 
That is what compels me to follow you. That love you have for me. It's so overwhelming. Lord, I thank you for the blessing of not feeling a have-to Christianity. Lord, I don't know how I would do it if I felt like I had to operate out of a compulsion or obligatory response to you. Thank you that I pursue you from a desire to make you smile, to show you the love, to be, the gratitude. God, I pray that over each and every one of us in this room this morning, God, that each of us would experience that joy of a relationship with you, that, that passion of a relationship with the one true God. Lord, I pray blessings over each of us this week that we would abide. And Lord, if somebody here is struggling and they don't know how to abide or they feel like, man, I really love Jesus at one point and I just don't have it anymore, Lord, I pray against pride. I pray against any of the shame or anything else that would come over people. The enemy would try to keep them away from having a conversation with someone about that. Lord, we have some excellent elders and deaconesses here. I pray our people would reach out and ask for help. They would seek your face again. And they would feel your presence because I believe truly it changes everything. God, I pray we would defeat the lies of the enemy in our lives this week, whatever lie he might bring, with the truth of the word of God and the truth of who you are. Lord, I pray blessings over our people this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great week. Be blessed, abide.